Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, I note that this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So, Shani, we were just talking about this, but it's our 50th episode. That's really exciting. It is exciting. Did, <laughs> yeah. did you think we were going to make it this far? Um, I guess I definitely thought we could get to 50 episodes, and I just didn't really know if anyone would be listening. But <laughs> yeah, well, we've talked about we've talked about the nanny before. Mm-hmm. I love the nanny. I, I know, I know. Yeah. And, you know, I was very surprised to find out there were 146 episodes of the nanny, which is indictment i think on society in general i feel like you're on the wrong side of this there are 146 episodes of the nanny yeah probably only watched by you (laughs) yeah but the question is can we make it as far as your hero the nanny yeah i mean that would probably take us two years to do so that seems like a really long time where anything could happen but um i feel like you'd get sick of me I feel like that would be a real possibility you think? in two years. Well, so. when when we were when we were talking about this before before yeah. we started recording, you were talking about all your plans for when you quit your job. <laughs> I was talking about my dream job. I'd love to own a florist that also has a wine shop in it, so I could drink and smell flowers. So. <laughs> okay, I don't know if that's a job. I think that's just living at home <laughs> okay. and getting flowers and drinking all day. Yeah, fair. I guess I could do that now. Somewhere like a ladies at lunch situation maybe right? yeah <laughs> okay well anyway hopefully stay tuned i'll let you guys know if shawnee quits if you at least give us some advance notice but, maybe just surprise everyone you know just turn up to an episode one day and it'll just be you yeah that would be a poor surprise for okay. people but anyway it is our 50th episode we do want to sincerely thank everyone for supporting the podcast so we started this just because we saw a pretty big gap in the financial guidance being provided in a lot of podcasts and on social media and we decided, you know, for once in our lives, Shawnee, that instead of just sitting around and complaining about it, we would try to actually do something productive. And, you know, obviously, I've talked before, you've talked before about sort of what we think about Finfluencers, so we don't need to repeat any of that. <laughs> but yeah, what we've been trying to do is kind of walk the line between making this approachable for beginners, but also comprehensive enough to provide understanding that's needed to be a successful investor over the long term. So, you know, everyone's an expert when the market's going up. But there is that, you know, Warren Buffett quote that says, when the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. That's our first drink of the podcast, mate. It is. It is. It's good. (laughs) Yeah. The line between making something approachable and also comprehensive enough to be valuable is pretty difficult. And we've been working hard to improve on that. And I think we've come a long way from our first episodes. They're a bit cringy to listen to. I tried to listen to one the other day. It wasn't that great. But Will, who produces the podcast, has done a really amazing job in improving the quality. And it is important to acknowledge that we couldn't have really done it without him. Um, But I wanted to echo Mark as well in thanking all of you. We work hard on this, even if it doesn't show. And we do it outside of our jobs because we want to support people in creating better futures for themselves and their families. So all the emails and comments and ratings and follows on Instagram um, mean a lot to us and make all of the work worth it. So thank you very much. Okay, so we should we get started now? So Let's the, the 50th it. episode is, is an actual an episode. episode. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we've been talking about shares a lot recently, and we thought we would turn our attention to ETFs and do a two-part series. So the first part, which we'll obviously do today, is going to set the foundation and go through the first part of our analysis. And we really want to spend a bit of time today going through the fundamentals so investors at each end of the experience spectrum can fully understand what they are investing in when they purchase an ETF. 
And then the second part will sort of continue with that analysis and any lessons you can derive from it. Yeah, so this ETF episode is timely because Australia's ETF industry turned 20 a couple of weeks ago. And ETFs are more popular than ever. According to State Street, the growth in assets and ETFs in Australia over the past 10 years has seen compounded annual growth rates of over 28%. That outpaces North America, which came in at 17.4%, and Europe at 15.1%. Yeah, and in the past year, we've also seen a huge shift in the demographics of ETF investors. And millennials and Gen Z overtook baby boomers and Gen X as the largest investors in ETFs. And we've also seen a huge upsurge of female investors. So in 2001, less than 10% of new ETF investors were female. Today, that's increased to 26%. And if we see the same sort of growth rate we've seen in the past year, then we can actually see parity in less than five years, which would be pretty amazing. Yeah, and we think it is great that there are so many new investors and that so many are choosing ETFs. The advantage of ETFs are that they're relatively easy to purchase and anything that breaks down the barriers for new investors is good in our books because getting over that first hurdle and starting to invest is hard enough. We also like ETFs because they're generally low cost, offer diversification with one trade and access to asset classes that are otherwise difficult to get exposure to. And with this rise in new investors that get their toes wet with instruments like ETFs, there's often questions of how to build and structure their portfolio after that first purchase. There are worries about whether they need to diversify from just one ETF or if there's a risk in them just keeping all their eggs in one basket. So there's a worry about whether they're doing enough. Do I buy more ETFs? Do I buy less? How many do I hold? There are many questions that can slowly destroy the confidence of new investors and can often lead to poor outcomes. And as we've often said, we want this podcast to help all investors get a little better understanding of what they are buying. Understanding what you own is a real is really important as an investor because that understanding means that hopefully you'll react a little bit better when things go wrong, which they inevitably will on in investing. So let's address some of these common questions. The first is whether investors need to diversify across ETF providers. And this is probably one of the most common questions that we get from attendees of our webinar series. So what do you think, Mark? No. Okay. <laughs> we should do one of these where you ask very long questions and I just give a one-word answer. Okay. I don't think we'd get many listen- listeners to that. But... I mean, I think it would be amusing. But okay. <laughs> but the the shorter answer is that there are so many safeguards for investors when it comes to funds. And the risk of you, you losing your money because a fund manager runs away with it is basically nil. So funds are structured in a way where the company you're investing in doesn't actually hold your money. It's held by a custodian. So for example... You invested in a Vanguard fund. Their custodian is J.P. Morgan. That means that J.P. Morgan holds the assets in your interest and will hold, maintain, and deal with assets in accordance with directions received from Vanguard. And the directions Vanguard give J.P. Morgan will, of course, be based on instructions that they receive from you. So in short, with these managers that are regulated, embezzlement or corporate collapse or failure will not impact your assets. There are safeguards and layers of separation and checks that ensure this. Okay, so the next question is how many ETFs are enough to be properly diversified. And this is pretty complex to answer. And as always, investing is a personal endeavor, which means that the vehicle and the outcome will also be personal to you. So this number will depend on your goals, what you're trying to achieve, and the exposure to different asset classes you need to get there. What we can speak about, though, is what you need to consider if you're going to invest in several ETFs, because you face the risk of overcomplicating your portfolio and investing in duplicate holdings. 
under this misconception that you're increasing the diversification in your portfolio by adding new ETFs. Yeah, so let's go through a simplified example of this. I'm invested in the iShares S&P 500 ETF, which is just an ETF that invests in the top 500 largest companies by market cap in the US. I've decided I want broad international equity exposure as well, so I go and invest in the Magellan Global Active ETF. When I look at the underlying holdings, 73% of Magellan's holdings match what's in the iShares S&P 500. Of course, at different weightings, but this international equity fund that I thought would give me broad access to global markets is pretty much giving me the exposure my portfolio already has. Of course, this is a simplified example and there are plenty of reasons why you would hold on to both in your portfolio, but it's understanding to check what you are invested in before taking that leap. Yeah, that's right, Sean. It's important to look at the underlying holdings before you invest. Are you actually investing in what you think you're investing in, or are you just concentrating your exposure? Understanding what you're investing in, why you're investing in it, will get, will guide you much better than just an arbitrary number of ETFs that you should hold. So have a listen to our portfolio construction episode if you want some guidance into how to structure your portfolio and find the type of exposure you need to reach your goals. So those are the two main concerns that we get from new investors with ETFs. So back to it. On a previous episode, we talked about an ETF as an instrument, how they work, the fees, and the different factors that help you decide if an ETF is right for you. But it is important to remember that an ETF is just a vehicle to access what you're ultimately investing in, a share or a bond or other securities. You're not investing in the ETF. You're investing in the securities that are held in the ETF. And that is what we want to help you understand today. So ETFs are both active and passive. For active ETFs, a manager is selecting the investments that go into that ETF. For a passive ETF, the ETF is following an index. To understand what you're investing in, you need to understand the strategy that the manager is following for an active ETF, and the index ETF is tracking for a passive ETF. We're going to focus on the unique risks and rewards available to investors in a series of ETFs today. So today, we're going to talk about six different ETFs. We picked these ETFs using a couple of different criteria. We picked ETFs that received a gold, silver, or bronze rating from our analysts, which means our analysts think highly of them. So unfortunately, as much as we all enjoy them, no rants from Mark today on thematic ETFs. We also tried to pick a range of ETFs that represented the different options available to investors. So we picked from different providers, BetaShares, VanEck, State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock. We picked an active ETF and we picked domestic and global ETFs, a small cap ETF, an ETF that focuses on quality and a sustainable ETF. So while we picked six out of the 270 or so ETFs available in Australia, we hope that this is a bit representative. Okay, so we need to announce which ETFs we picked. This is where we need sound, right? A drum roll or something. (laughs) Will, can you organize that? Yeah. Yeah. And and do you you think that these ETFs are nervous, hoping that they (laughs) will appear on Investing Compass? Um, I would feel that the ETFs are pretty indifferent to this process, Mark. But <laughs> see, I, I see this as more as like one of those reward shows. We're mm-hmm. all like nervously looking around, knowing they have to like clap for the other ETFs that get picked, even if they're not, even mm-hmm. though they hate them and want to win. Should we get back to the episode? <laughs> I think so. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so um, I will. I will let you know what ETFs were picked. This is a bit of a tongue twister, so bear with me. We have BlackRock's iShares Core S&P ASX 200 ETF with the ticker symbol of IOZ, Vanek Australian Equal Weighted ETF with the ticker symbol of MVW, Vanguard's Miski International Small Cap ETF with the ticker symbol of VISM, Vanek Miski World X Australia Quality ETF with the ticker symbol of QUAL, 
BetaShares Global Sustainability Leaders ETF with the ticker symbol of ETHI and Platinum Asia ETF with the ticker symbol of PAXX. Nice work. <laughs> I made it. Yeah, <laughs> that was impressive. Okay. So why don't we start close to home, since that kind of seems appropriate given our current predicament here mm-hmm. in New South Wales. <laughs> So we can start with that BlackRock product, the iShares Core S&P ASX 200 ETF with the ticker symbol IOZ. So as the name suggests, this ETF is tracking the Aussie share market. The ASX 200 is a market cap weighted index that covers the 200 largest companies in Australia. So both of these two concepts are related. So why don't we start with market cap, Shani? So what is that? Yeah, so market cap is short for market capitalization. Market capitalization is calculated by multiplying the share price by the total number of shares outstanding. This is how much a company is worth, because if you were able to buy every share in a company, you would own the entire company. And market capitalization is how we measure the size of companies. So right now, when we're recording this, Apple is the largest company in the world using this measure as its market capitalization is 2.1 trillion US dollars. And just to put that in perspective, all of the shares that are in Australia have a current market cap of around 1.75 trillion US dollars. So Apple is worth more than all Australian companies combined. Now, there are other ways, of course, we can measure the size of companies. So how many employees they have, how high their sales are, but that's not the way we measure it in investing. And incidentally, the answer to those two questions is Walmart. So Shani, do you know that Walmart employs 2.2 million people and is $524 billion in annual sales. That seems like a lot of people. That does seem like a lot mm, of people. Yeah. <laughs> so the ASX 200 and this iShares ETF that tracks it gives you exposure to the 200 biggest companies in Australia based on how much they're worth or their market capitalization. Mark also said that this index is market cap weighted. When you're looking at any index, you want to not only look at what's included, but also the weighting. The weighting is how much of your investment will be allocated to each of those companies, Most indexes are market capitalization weighted like the ASX 200, and that means that the bigger the company or larger the market cap, the more the company makes up of the index. This weighting methodology has a lot of implications that are underappreciated by investors. That's right, Shani. Remember, a company's market cap is calculated by multiplying the price of a share by the number of shares outstanding. Shares outstanding can fluctuate as companies issue options and shares to executives, buyback shares on the open market or do secondary issuances to fund an acquisition or just general operations. But in reality, for most companies, changes in the number of shares outstanding doesn't make too much of a material impact on their market cap. What does make a huge impact is changes in price. So what this means is that if a company's share price is going up more than the overall market, it will start to make up a bigger part of the index. In a world where passive investing is becoming more and more popular, this will likely cause the share price to go up even more if there are inflows into ETFs like this iShares product we're talking about, because more of every dollar that is getting invested in the ETF will get allocated to that company. What's important to remember is that the same thing will happen on the way down. So poor share price performance in the largest companies will drag the index down, which could start to induce people to sell ETFs and funds that track that index. Since more of every dollar that is getting pulled out of the index will come out of the largest companies, it would cause them to fall even more. The same momentum that we have seen on the upside since the GFC could also happen on the downside. Okay, let's get back to this iShares ASX 200 ETF. That background information was important because we're going to start looking at what is in it. We know all the shares are Australian, so we don't have to worry about any geographic differences here. But let's take a look at what it holds. So the first thing we want to look at is the stock style. 
And we're using the Morningstar Style Box, which plots ETFs to show where they fall on a value versus growth perspective and a market cap perspective, meaning, as we just learned, large versus small companies. So we can see that this ETF falls in the large cap blend category. The large cap piece shouldn't be surprising as it tracks an index that represents the 200 largest companies in Australia, which is then weighted so the biggest companies make up more of the index. Well, why don't you tell us about this value versus growth thing, Shani? Yeah, sure. So shares are categorized using relative valuation measures like the price to earnings ratio and the price to book value ratio. Ones with the highest value valuation measures fall into the growth category. Those with the lowest valuation measures fall into the ca- value category and the ones in the middle fall into the blend category. The reason you look at where an ETF falls on this spectrum is to get an idea of what type of shares you're investing in when you put your money into the product. If the largest companies in the index are growth shares, then you would allocate more of your cash to them. Same thing if the largest companies are value shares. In general, growth shares are more volatile than value shares. That means that their prices tend to move around a lot more than value shares, and that makes sense. They are trading at higher valuation levels because investors expect them to grow more in the future. Since more of their value is far out in the future, investors are always looking for clues to what that growth will be and adjusting their expectations based on those clues. Those adjustments of expectations will call the cause the price to, price to bounce around. Wow, Shani, you really stumbled through that last one. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> so if an ETF plots significantly in one direction or the other on this value to grow spectrum, then there could be implications on you as an investor. But in this case, it's right in the middle. So not much to see here. We're going to turn our attention now to sectors. Sectors are a grouping of companies that has similar characteristics. In general, those characteristics relate to how the companies react to different economic environments or their cyclicality. In the case of the ASX 200 and the CTF, two sectors jump out immediately, basic materials and financial services. Just above 30% of the index is in financial services and a little more than 18% is in basic materials. And as Mark said, that's a lot. There, of course, is no right or wrong way to how much should be allocated to any sector. But if we look at all the companies in the developed world outside of Australia, as represented by the Miski World X Australia Index, less than 4% is in basic materials and less than 15% is in financial services. So this definitely has implications. So, Mark, did you want to walk through what they are so I don't stumble through them? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Please, I can't, I can't criticize you at all, right? So... As we said earlier, sector groups companies that have similar characteristics. In this case, both basic materials and financials are in sectors that are very cyclical. That means that in general, companies that fall into these sectors are highly sensitive to the business cycle. Let's explain what that means in a practical sense. The economic cycle has four phases, expansion, peak, recession, recovery. The performance of cyclical stocks tends to follow the economy. So when the economy does well, they should do well. And when the economy does poorly, they should do poorly. That also means that they are more volatile than other sectors. And this once again makes sense. As we discussed in the third part of our share trilogy, if you have more business risk, you will have more volatility. So, Shani, let's do a brief overview of these sectors since almost 50% of your investment in this ETF will be made up of financials and basic materials. Why don't you start us out? Mm-hmm, sure. So, the basic materials sector is made up of companies that supply a lot of raw materials that go into construction. Many of these companies are mining companies, which of course makes sense given the high allocations in the Aussie market. And that means that many of these companies are faced with significant commodity risk as they are price takers. And that means that they sell their products at whatever price the commodity sells for. 
Those prices are largely driven by demand, which of course means when there is more construction in times of economic growth, the prices will be higher, and when there is less construction, prices will be lower. Supply, of course, plays a role here, but the way to limit it is for companies to mine and sell less of the commodity, which obviously isn't great for short-term profits. Mark, why don't you handle the financial sector? Sure. The financial sector is made up of banks, investment managers, and insurance companies. When the economy is doing really well and there's high employment and wage growth, it can stimulate more businesses and people to borrow money and invest, which is, of course, good for the sector. During weaker economic times, businesses and people borrow less and may have issues paying back their loans. So one interesting thing about the sector is that traditionally it's done pretty well when interest rates have risen. Interest rates going up signals a strong economy, which of course is good, good for cyclical share, but it can also increase the profit margin of these firms since they earn more money on cash and other investments, and the spread between the cost of capital and how much they lend it out for generally increases. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a share-side investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSite's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. So before we take a peek at some of the holdings, let's once again revisit the concept of a market cap-weighted index. Looking at how much of an ETF is allocated to individual holdings is important in a market cap-weighted index because it can shift over time as the relative size of companies varies. It's also important to note that while investing in an ETF that follows a market cap-weighted index does give you exposure to a lot of different companies, you're often allocating almost meaningless amounts of your investments to the smallest companies in the index. In this case, you get exposure to 200 companies in this ETF, but just over 44% is allocated to the top 10 holdings. That leaves 56% available for the other 190 holdings. In fact, if we look at this ETF, we can see that less than 9% of it's allocated to the bottom 100 holdings. That means on an individual share basis, those investments are meaningless and will have little to no effect on the overall performance of this ETF. Clearly, the largest holdings are important here. So Mark, why don't you walk through them? Shani said over 44% of the ETF is allocated to the top 10 holdings. The largest holding is CBA with just over 8.3%, followed by CSL at 6.63%, BHP at 6.24%, Westpac at 4.47%, and NAB at 4.26%. Normally, you have to do those lists, mm, Johnny. You always make me do those lists. I know, I know. <laughs> I, we're rolling over. I'm trying, not, I'm trying to make sure that you don't leave and go start out this florist <laughs> slash wine store. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. We can see in that top five list how financials and basic material companies make up such a large part of the index. So rounding out the top 10 are ANZ, West Farmers, Macquarie, Woolies, and Telstra. Now, there's one very important piece of news that came out recently that will impact the ASX 200 and the CTF. We're recording this in early September 2021, and BHP recently announced that they will unify their corporate structure under their Australian listing and end the listing in London. And we aren't going to spend too much time explaining that, 
But what it will mean is that BHP will become Australia's biggest company, taking over for CBA. And Morgan Stanley just came out with research that showed that BHP could jump to 11.7% of the ASX 200. This, of course, will increase the concentration of the index and this ETF to a single company whose share of price is driven significantly by the price of iron ore. It will also increase the exposure to the basics materials sector. So let's sum up the IOZ ETF. Our analysts give it a bronze rating based on the extremely low fee of 0.09% and the ability of BlackRock to minimize tracking error given their deep experience in running passive products. Today, however, we're focusing on the exposure you're getting as an investor. If you invest in the ETF, you're not as diversified as it may appear at first glance with a great deal of the index concentrated in the top 10 and perhaps soon a huge allocation to BHP. You're also getting a lot of exposure to two cyclical sectors. You're faced with commodity price risk and exposure to companies that may perform better in higher interest rate environments. How this ETF performs will be based on how these sectors and large holdings perform. All things to keep in mind with the ASX 200 and the IOZ ETF. Okay, so let's move on to our second ETF, which is related. And we are going to look at the VanEck Australian Equal Weighted ETF with the ticker symbol of MVW. And hopefully something jumps out to you in the name of the ETF, Equal Weight. We've spent some time explaining a market cap weighted index, but now we see a different way to weight the index, and that is equally. And equally is good, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're, supposed to, we're supposed to treat people equally, so this ETF is treating companies equally. Yeah. Okay, so... In this case, the ETF is tracking a slightly different index, so the ASX 100 index. These are the 100 biggest companies that trade in Australia. We are using market cap to determine those 100 biggest companies. When it comes to deciding how much to allocate to each one of them, we are simply putting an equal amount in each. So let's take a look at what those implications are, Shani. Yeah, so, well, once again, these are all Australian companies, so no need to look at geographic disbursement. If you look at the Morningstar style box, you can see that this ETF still falls within a large cap blend category. However, if you look at it where it's plotted on the box, it's moving down towards the mid cap range. Not there, but a lot closer. And this makes sense because now instead of putting more of an allocation into the largest companies, you're putting the same in the smallest company in the index as the largest. When we turn our attention to sector allocations, we start to see the impact of the different allocation methodologies. We still see a very large allocation to basic materials because, after all, this is still Australia and there are a lot of miners. But it has dropped slightly from around 18.4% to 16.6%. However, when we look at financials, we see a more dramatic change. In the market cap-weighted ETF, more than 30% was allocated to financials, and that has now dropped to under 18%. We also see close to 14.5% allocated to industrials, which more than doubled the 7% in the market cap-weighted product. We still have just over half the allocation to the more cyclical sectors of basic materials, financials, consumer cyclical, and real estate, but that is down from close to 63% in that iShares ASX 200 ETF. And this index is rebalanced on a quarterly basis, which means that positions are bought and sold to bring them all back to equal weighting. In between these rebalances, the ETF will of course not be equal weighted, as some shares will do better than others. For example, at the end of August, WiseTech is the biggest position at 1.45%, which is due to a recent run-up in the share price. So why would you choose to invest in an equal-weighted index rather than a market-cap-weighted index? Well, obviously, this all has to do with your personal circumstances, but one reason may be because you might own a couple of the largest individual shares and don't want to double down on your exposure to them with an ETF. For instance, if you own BHP or CSL or one of the big four banks, 
Maybe you didn't want to purchase an ETF that allocates upwards of 7% of its assets to these same companies. Even without owning an individual share, you might just be concerned with the large allocations to these companies and the resource and financial services sector. There's also some academic research that suggests that equal-weighted indexes outperform market cap-weighted indexes. The basic premise is that over the long run, smaller companies and value stocks outperform. This was a pretty famous bit of investing-related academic research by two professors named Faman French. The study is called the three-factor model. In an equal-weighted index, where you're not allocating more of the portfolio to the largest shares, which by definition have had better share performance and likely have higher earnings multiples, it is important to note that since the GFC, value in smaller companies have not outperformed, and we've seen large cap growth shares outperform. And we see this a little bit with these two ETFs. Over the past five years, the market cap-weighted IOZ ETF has delivered 10% annually, while the equal-weighted ETF has delivered 9.2% annually. But that, of course, is the past, which is pretty irrelevant. We want you to understand what the drivers are for a market cap-weighted ETF versus an equal-weighted ETF. The performance of the largest companies in the market cap-weighted ETF will have an outsized influence on performance. The performance of the smallest companies in the index are basically irrelevant. The degree to that outsized influence varies and is based on the relative size of the largest companies in the index and the smallest companies in the index. But we are entering a world where after the BHP delisting in London, we will have close to 33% of the index in the top three companies. That means that the performance of BHP, CBA, and CSL will have the same influence as the combined performance of the 173 smallest companies in the 200-company index. If you're investing in IOZ, you better hope that those three companies perform well. If you're investing in an equal-weighted index, you want the average company to perform well because that will drive performance. We need to make one last point about an equal-weighted index. The quarterly rebalancing that's done to keep it equal-weighted has some tax consequences. In a rising market, the act of selling the top-performing shares and buying the bottom-performing shares will have a very real impact on you as it will result in capital gains. Those capital gains will be distributed to you as part of the distributions you receive from the ETF. Many investors think these distributions are just dividends, but they're not. They also include any capital gains incurred. In a market cap-weighted ETF, you don't have this notion of rebalancing. Changes in the index occur at the periphery as the composition of the 200 largest companies change. If the 201st grows larger and the 200th, it will replace it in the index and the ETF. These changes are far less likely to result in distributed capital gains of the size that we can see in equal-weighted indexes. That takes care of MVW, which our analysts give a silver rating, and it also takes care of the first part of our ETF series. The next part of the series will continue with a deep dive on the rest of our six funds and hopefully help with increasing your understanding of what you're investing in. Okay, we made it through the episode. (laughs) You made it. Yeah. So um, (laughs) I think our our 50th 50th episode was about as long as all the 49 that preceded (laughs) it combined, but we did make it through. So what you guys miss, of course, in the recording is Shani's- my voice. You lost your voice. (laughs) You spilled water all over the table and then went and got tissues to clean it up, but we finished it. Mm -hmm. So there we go. Good news. Good news. Hopefully Shani will be back for our 51st episode. But we would love any ratings or comments you provide. If you have any questions, just send them through the email address, which is in the show notes. And finally, thank you guys for following our Instagram page. We're almost to our goal of 300, but we're not quite there yet. So anyone that wants to follow us on Instagram, we would appreciate it. It will include a video of Shawnee spilling water all over the desk. So thank you guys very much for joining us. 
Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.